You're listening to Train of Thought, a podcast of the Biblical Christ Research Institute. Today's topic, a biblical critique of James Cone. Let's get into the discussion. All right, so episode eight, episode eight. Again, we thank everybody for listening. Thank everybody for supporting us. Thank you for your feedback. You know, both if it's negative or positive, we just thank you for the feedback. <clears throat> we pray that those who are listening are blessed by this, are being informed by this, being transformed by our efforts to proclaim God's truth uh, in the midst of a world that's filled with opposing ideologies. <clears throat> Again, this is the Train of Thought podcast for the Biblical Christ Research Institute. And uh, today we have a uh, a guest that you will be familiar with because he came on in the third episode when he did the constitution of man about whether man is a dichotomy or a trichotomy. Uh, so you should be familiar with him if you've been listening to the podcast. His name is Eric Powers. <clears throat> Today he'll be talking about biblical anthropology and, and critiquing James Cone uh, through that biblical anthropology. So before I cut him loose and let him do what he has to do because he has <clears throat> quite a bit prepared for us. So he's going to be doing the majority of the talking this episode. And I will, you know, stop him if I need to ask a question or if I want to kind of try to throw a monkey wrench at him or something like that. And, you know, my, my boy Duran will, you know, if he needs to add something or interject, you know, he'll, he'll jump in there too. But it's going to be primarily Eric because he's, he's done a lot of research on this. He just recently taught um, taught this to his church, and now he's sharing it with us on this podcast. But before <clears throat> I turn it over to Eric, I wanted to just kind of give a brief biography of James Cone. And um, I got this biography from a PBS series called This Far By Faith. And I'm just going to kind of highlight some of the things that they say about him, just so you have an idea of who he, who he was uh, before we just jump straight into his, his doctrine, his, his theology. So uh, James Cone was born in Fordyce, Arkansas in 1939, and he grew up in a small town of Bearden. And of course, you know, during that time, there was, racism was very prevalent during that time. Segregation was very prevalent during that time. Uh, he grew up in Macedonia AME. For those of you who don't know what AME is, it's the African <clears throat> Methodist Episcopal Church. And um, Bearden, Arkansas, had a population of 400 blacks and 800 whites. And the whites in Bearden were quite racist. Okay? So he, he grew up in uh, a very severe time where uh, racial segregation and racial violence was prevalent. Okay. So he was called to the ministry around the age of 16, and he ended up becoming a pastor the following year in 1954. 
and he went off to college. So while he was in college, he was preaching at several churches and he was also a reporter for his school. And so as a reporter for his school, he followed the Montgomery bus boycott that was uh, organized by MLK, Martin Luther King Jr. And uh, at first he wanted to be like King, have that nonviolent approach. And uh, so he got inspired and he decided to go back to school. So he went to graduate school. So he got uh, his bachelor's from Garrett Theological Seminary in Wisconsin. And he got his MA and his PhD in theology from Northwestern University in 1963 in 1965. And then eventually he went on to, if you're familiar with Union Theological Seminary, which is still active today, he ended up becoming a professor of theology at Union Theological Seminary, where he pretty much taught the rest of his, his life. Okay. But at one point in his life, he had a crisis of faith when, as I said, he was inspired by Martin Luther King, but then he heard Malcolm X. Okay, Duran and I talk about Malcolm X quite a bit. <clears throat> and it was the voice of Malcolm X that made him question his theology. Because okay? Malcolm X said that Christianity was a white man's religion. And he said that blacks should adopt an understanding of God that grew out of their own history and experience. So, you know, Malcolm X railed against the, the blonde-haired, blue-eyed, white Jesus. Okay? And so that struck Cone, and it gave him a crisis of faith. <clears throat> um, but then he was still kind of leaning toward MLK, but then when Stokely Carmichael came about, uh, Stokely Carmichael in the, the Northern riots and his call for black power during the Meredith March in Mississippi led Cone to kind of question everything. And so he says in a quote, he says, for me, and this is the preface to his book, Black Theology and Black Power, which was the first book that he wrote. He says, for me, the burning theological question was, how can I reconcile Christianity and black power? So you should already, if you're a careful listener, you should already see an issue there. He says, how can I reconcile Christianity and black power? Martin Luther King Jr.'s idea of nonviolence and Malcolm X's by any means necessary philosophy. Eventually he went on to write a book concerning the ideologies of MLK and Malcolm X. Okay. So for him, Christianity no longer explained or held meaning in the turbulent years of the 1960s. And so he says he was within inches of leaving the Christian faith. And so he said that if he was gonna remain a Christian that he would have to reinterpret his faith to respond to the, the, the turbulent racial tension that was going on in society. Right. And as you know, uh, a few years ago, he, he passed away. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to give, give a brief biography of his life just to, to see, I mean, there's way more to. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> what, what, uh, what happened in his transitions and things, but yeah, I just and wanted everybody to have a familiar idea of who he is before I gave you the floor. So yeah, that's, that's without good. further ado, here is Eric Powers, and he's going to get into some biblical anthropology, 
anthropology, and he's going to talk about James Cole. Well, uh, let me uh, start off by saying um, you brothers are doing an incredible job with these podcasts. Thank so you, thank you, th thank thank you, you for you. doing this, and thank you for having me on. It's a privilege to be speaking with you brothers about this topic. Anytime. And uh, this series, I think, that you guys are going through, the Tracing Origins of Liberation Theology, is extremely important. And I appreciate that biography about James Cone because it does show his development of how he developed uh, black theology, because uh, he is the architect of what is known as black liberation theology. Mm -hmm. And it shows kind of what he went through. And uh, like you said, his existential crisis that he had while he was, uh, you know, in school, et cetera, during the um, civil rights movement. And so all that, I think, is, is very helpful to give a backdrop about the man, James Cone. But when we talk about, talk about this topic and, and what's happening today in, uh, in our day, 2020, with um, you know, Black Lives Matter and uh, what seems to be a resurgence of serious uh, discussions about race and racism and how that applies to our capitalistic society here in the United States of America, when you're talking about this particular issue, and I just want to bring this up for the people that are listening, because I know you brothers know this, that is race, racism, ethnicities, etc. Um, this topic finds itself objectively under the category, theologically speaking, because James Cohn was a theologian, he was a self-proclaimed theologian. This category of race, racism, ethnicities, etc., it's under the category, theologically speaking, known as anthropology. So anthropos is a Greek word for man and ology studies, the so study of man. And a lot of people in our society have a different, a different, differing uh, perspectives on how they would approach and study anthropology. But for us as Christians, this is an extremely important topic to discuss and go over because we need to think of this in terms of biblical anthropology, going to the Bible, the Word of God, to define anthropology correctly and so uh, we should not learn our anthropology which i did because i i grew up in um and when the secular institutions for education at, at, in high school and out of high school we, we should not uh study anthropology from the perspective of the secular institution department of the social sciences mm. you know psychology and modern psychology and all these things so critical race theory and all those other things are inseparably constrained, I think, more to the secular institution uh, identification of anthropology as the part of the social sciences, that it was really popular in the 20th century. You know, you're talking about sociology, you're talking about psychology, development psychology, abnormal psychology, all that. So we should, we need to, we need to unlearn that stuff that we all grew up, you know, learning. We need to go to the Bible, the Word of God, as the objective source to truly define these terms, um, you know, the terms of anthropology, study the, the study of man from what the Bible teaches. And the reason why I say that is because the Word of God is the objective source to define properly ethnic distinctions and how we're supposed to think of ethnicity objectively concerning our origin as a human race. And so um, also uh, what is more objectively uh, finding from the word of God, the terms by which reconciliation is possible between diverse ethnicities that make up one human race. And so you, you kind of, you hear from pseudoscience and those features in a lot of this discussion uh, today, even from Black Lives Matter, you have this kind of um, Darwinistic evolutionary pseudoscience 
that kind of divides the human race into multiple races, what, they, what, what, what they're kind of saying. And I think that's the wrong way to look at it because I think we, we comprise one human race. There's not multiple races. Right. There's, mul- there's multiple ethnicities that right. comprise one human race, but, but we are one human race. And so there, and if that's, if that's the case, and it is, because that's what the word of God teaches, um, there's no room for ethnocentricity and divide, trying to divide that human race into multiple races to say that one race is more superior than another, because that is not what we read from the word of God. Mm-hmm. And so I don't like using the term race in a plural sense, like the way the world system likes to use it, um, because there's not multiple races. There's only one race of man. Uh, instead, I like using the term ethnicities to refer to diversity of ethnicity in the human race. Like, for instance, if you, if you think about the, um, the continent of Africa, you have the, you know, the Hutu and the Tutsis that took exception to, the, to, them, uh, to each other in Rwanda and, and Burundi. And uh, those, those were two. Um, you know, there's, this, there's distinctions among, that, among those tribes, even in ethnicity. And then in Malawi, you, know, you have tribes, the Chewa, who migrated from the Congo. And then the Nagoni migrated from South Africa. And in the north of Malawi, there's the Tumbunka and the uh, Nagoni. And so I bring that up because you have uh, diversity of ethnicities in the continent of Africa. And so that's not, um, that th- those are not, you know, uh, different, different races, different ethnicities. And those ethnicities intermarried and mixed. And so African-Americans in the United States can trace their, um, their genealogy to uh, that diversity, even in the continent of Africa. In Europe, you have Germanic ethnicities, Italian, French distinctions, Celtic, Anglo-Saxon, Slavic, Scandinavian, like you mentioned, uh, to name a few, even in Europe. And then there's diversity among Asian ethnicities, South American, South Pacific, et cetera. So, the, the word of God presents this as a diversity of ethnicities that comprise one human race. And my argument for that, you see in Acts 17.26, a quote from the New American Standard Bible, Acts 17.26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. So there, the reason why I like using the term ethnicities instead of, say, you know, race, races, the reason why I like using the term ethnicity is because the Greek word there for nation is ethnos, where we get the English word ethnicity. So ethnicity is a, it's a biblical term. And so as a biblical anthropologist, and we all have to be biblical anthropologists, I prefer the term ethnicities that make up one human race. And I'm going to show why this is important later as I'm talking about ethnocentricity that you're getting from um you know quote-unquote whites and quote-unquote blacks in the united states of america because i think when you use those terms even white and black i think that's disingenuine and it's sardonic to its core and there's there's a lot of baggage by using those terms because i'm I'm not white an egg is white the board behind me a piece of paper is white (laughs) i'm european Germanic, Italian, and Celtic ancestry. And so I take exception to people calling me white, just like I don't like using the term black to refer to, refer to African-Americans in the United States. These are men and women from 
and Af- African ethnicities. Mm-hmm. And so we got we to approach this with maturity and from um, the biblical definition of these terms and not uh, sar- sardonically taking exception to um, someone who, you know, is of a different ethnicity than we are. So there's no room for ethnocentricity. And I think at the core of black liberation theology and um, critical race theory, uh, there is there is a sense of ethnocentricity. And I'll, I'm going to uh, talk about that when I get into cone. Um, but listen, the, 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 the term, and I have to bring up terms because this, this has a lot to do with the terms of reconciliation. You know, we got to go to the Bible and, and, and define even these terms of reconciliation because Cone has a lot to talk about when he's defining the atonement, yeah. when, he's de- when he's defining yeah. uh, the, the term reconciliation and how he defines it. And I'm going to read some quotes from him from one of his most, more popular books. And, uh, and so I think we need to move away from using the term race and racism because even if you trace the etymology of the term race, it's uh, it finds it as English roots from the from the late 15th century, but especially how the term is used today. It's just they, they use it in such a way to promote pseudoscience, Darwinistic evolution that suggests that 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 some ethnicities have evolved to become more superior than um, other ethnicities, and and that that is uh, yeah I think driving a lot of this uh, anger mm-hmm. and. Um, animosity towards you know among different ethnicities so the word of god in conclusion explains its features in terms of multiple ethnicities that comprise one human race so like i said i don't like using the term black or white really the way that they're used sardonically in our culture today because they are used um sardonically and honestly i could care less about what the u.s census today recognizes when they when they recognize six ethnic groups in the u.s you know white black american native alaskan native um and hawaiian or pacific islander and so that's what the united states census and and they don't have the um the uh, they're not the objective source either you know so there's a reason why i mean the first two ethnicities that they recognize is literally you know when you fill out an application get a job they're interested in what your ethnicity and they're tracing the uh these things from the, the U.S. Census, you know, are you white, black? Those are the first two things that they're looking for. Um, and so, uh, yeah, white, black, Asian, American Native or Alaskan Native and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander. I think Hispanics are even falling in the category of white. I could be wrong. Yeah, they even but, have one on there where it's talking about Hispanic or non-Hispanic at yes. times. So, even I mean, a distinction amongst, yeah. So that's, right. that's those are the ethnicities that they, they, they recognize. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's far more ethnicities in the United States than those on that list there. And so they're wrong and, and I'm not okay with it. And no one should really be okay with that. Um, so, you know, and I take the exception using the term black because, um, you know, the keys on a piano are black. Um, you know, so Africa, uh, African-Americans in the United States have an African ethnic genealogy. And so I don't even like using the term black, but it's happening in our nation right now, these terms. And, um, you know, we're benchmarking this date, you know, year 2020. But um, he, what you guys are seeing now, and you're talking about this, and I know you're going to exp- uh, expound on this further in 
later episodes, but there's, there seems to me as I'm looking at the media and all the rest that there's an increasing appeal for revolution and, and that revolution is motivated by ethnocentricity. And so ethnocentricity is, 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 you know, your ethnicity is the center and, um, mm -hmm. and you take exception to, you know, other ethnicities. And so you're, you're fighting for, you know, you're, you have this ethnocentricity concerning your, you know, ethnicity, you know, that your ethnicity is more important than another. And then, so you have this, uh, again, it's this is how it shows how all this is tied together in the things that we've discussed because people are triaging ethnicities. You know, one ethnicity is more, is primary than another secondary or tertiary. And, and so that's crazy, you know, when you're trying to triage ethnicities and argue that, a certain ethnicity is more superior than other ethnicities. And so I think that's sin. And it's, you know, you find that on, uh, you know, across the board, no matter, you know, cause it's, this is an issue. And I, I'm going to argue too, by going over these features of black liberation theology, that, um, that this is not really an, an ethnic issue. That this is not really an issue of race. This is a soteriological issue. And, fighting for a sound doctrine and protecting the real terms of reconciliation. Because I think when they bring up race and they bring up ethnicity, they're really, um, they're really trying to get you to focus on that. And I think it's a red herring. I think it's to keep you away from what it really means to be reconciled to God and be reconciled to man. And I'm going to go over that. So you got this provocation provoking a culture war based on racial prejudice. And uh, we're seeing that played out today in the contemporary movement referred to as Black Lives Matter, which is honestly nothing new to me, this movement. It's really not that novel to me, and I'll tell you why. Because you can accurately trace the origins of this particular revolutionary movement to its ideals and arguments. And that's what you guys are doing when you're going through liberation theology and you're kind of snowballing and, and building up and showing how all these, uh, all these um, fortresses you know, in people's minds, it's, it's all interconnected and it's developed and you can go back and trace its origins. And so when you, when you go back and you accurately, accurately trace the philosophical origins of what you're hearing from Black Lives Matter, specifically the epistemological origins, what they're talking about, um, they, they really get all this from pseudoscience, false theology, and argumentations from political ideologies like Karl Marx, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And so you can, I'm going to show how I'm going to go through and show how what, what you're hearing from black lives matters today, they got from black liberation theology, black liberation theology being kind of the forerunner for this, for the black experience in the United States of America um, and how that created critical race theory, because uh, you, you can clearly see how, even the critical race theory in, in its, in its claims that, uh, that shows you how it's at its origin is kind of this, this transition this evolution from Marxism where you have, you know, the oppressor versus the victim from Marxism. And that was based on class. And so that, that was evolved and borrowed from critical race theory where you have the white is the white man's the oppressor and the black man's the victim. And, and if you study, you can see how that's, that's interconnected and how they got that from Karl Marx. But really, um, I really think Black Lives Matters 
you know, from, from their, the, their anger and, uh, their appeal, um, to, you know, um, existentialism, epistemology, it comes from the neo-orthodoxy of heretical European white men. Mm-hmm. James Cone learned his theology and I, I know he wants to appeal to, uh, Malcolm X and, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And, it, and, it, and he did, um, those were major influences, but again, he's, he's an anthropologist. He did his doctoral thesis on anthropology and he's a theologian. And so he's studying and developing his theology and, and, um, fusing that together with the civil rights movement. Um, he got a lot of his existentialism, you know, wanting to enter into the black experience. He got that from heretical European white men and say, Oh, they want to take exception to the white man being the presser and, um, controlling minds with white theology, etc. cetera. Uh, the, the origins that they can trace their origins of black liberation theology. James Cohn was uh, heavily influenced from a theological perspective from white heretical European heretical neo-orthodoxy theologians. And so they get all their philosophy from white men and even Karl Marx, you know, he was, he was what they would consider a, a white man. Mm-hmm. So all these men that they, they borrowed these ideas, they lived in the early 20th and 19th centuries. You know, Karl Barth was a major influence of James Cone, Paul Tillich um, for theology and epistemology. Uh, combined with the political views of Karl Marx. And so um, I'm going to get into this, but right off, the cuff, right off the cuff, anyone listening to this needs to understand that, and I don't care if you take exception, but what I'm going to say is the truth. And you might not be able to handle the truth, but what I'm going to say is absolutely true. The movement Black Lives Matter wants to claim the so-called white man is the oppressor, has enslaved the minds of the black man, the victim, with white theology, or the white man is controlling African-Americans with culture and political entrapment. Well, the movement Black Lives Matter at the very core and foundation of their, of their beliefs and, and philosophies, they borrowed from white men, heretical white men that uh, we, we would consider heretical and not orthodox concerning the Christian faith. Karl Barth, Paul Tillich, and Karl Marx. And what, one of the leaders of the group, uh, the Black Lives Matter group, matters group one of the leaders of the group even mentioned that she is a marxist she yes. flat out said that she is a marxist now how that doesn't ring alarm bells in your head is beyond me no, absolutely yeah and um and, and, that, and that's because she's borrowing a lot of her understanding her political philosophies from critical race theory and that's you see that evolution from you know, um, in Marxism, you have the oppressor, and this is based on class terms for Karl Marx. We have the oppressor um, is the is the rich uh, class, and then you have the the poor man is the um, is the victim, and and they're controlling you know they're controlling the political climate, the laws, everything just to keep the poor man, and so he can't you know uh, come out of you know his. Um, economic disaster and then and and so he's the victim and so they took that and there's an evolution from that and they just made it instead of class they turned it in into terms based on race and so how our capitalistic society in the united states of america is designed at its foundation the claim in critical race theory as racist um 
to keep uh, the black man from succeeding. Is uh, this the critical race thing? So she's, you can clearly see, because you hear her speaking. That's why it's so important to go back and trace the origins and development of these things and this, and this thought and, and, to, and to see, you know, because everybody has, when you're talking about theology or, you know, even political science there, they have um, an ideology that they've, that you, that you can pin to them. It's just repackaged and, and you're hearing the voices of voices of the past and there's nothing new under the sun. So she's just, she's just uh, now bringing up, she's been heavily influenced by critical race theory, which is, uh, I think you guys need to do um, entire podcast because that's a huge monster that, that comes after black liberation. I can bring up some of the, the features of it, um, but it's definitely important in the conversation. So um, I think that's a major contradiction. Though. I don't know what you guys think that, you know, the fact that you're saying, um, you know, black lives matter saying that, uh, that the white man is, you know, even when it comes to theology, um, controlling the, the black man um, with, with white theology and, and white, uh, you know, political, you know, whatever, you know, capitalism, but it's a major contradiction because you trace their origins, you know, white men, um, you know, heretical neo-orthodoxy white men is where, is, is where you get a lot of these, get a lot, a lot of the, the origins of their philosophies and the things they're holding to. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, and I think one of the features of that hypocrisy, what you're seeing in this movement, Eric, is also the sense in which uh, it's a movement that is begging for legitimacy from the very people they claim are oppressing them. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you would think that they would go the black nationalist route of separation and call for separation. If you believe that the ethnicity can be strong on its own and it's being oppressed, you would call for it to come out of its oppression and exist on its own. But when you take 34 million plus uh, from donations and funnel that to the Democratic Party, oh, yeah. on top of that, you are literally, uh, you know, proliferating this mentality of we have to receive legitimacy from the so-called white establishment so that our cause will be recognized and so that we can move forward. Uh, you know, to me, the, politi- the politicizing of it should also, as Brother Chris said, raise some alarms in people's minds. But you can see that hypocrisy in the fact that they don't want to separate from the very people they claim are, quote unquote, oppressing them. So there's a sure. great hypocrisy there. Oh yeah. Yeah, for, for for me, the 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 other side of the hypocrisy is that they turn their eyes away from things like the fact that every weekend in Chicago, black people are killing other black people and they try to compartmentalize that as not being as much of an issue or as being a separate issue. And they try to focus all of their uh, attacks on um, what I would say is, uh, while some of it may be true, but uh, most of it is just a lot of straw men that they're just burning down, you know? And when people such as me or Deron or even you ask the question, you know, when are you going to deal with abortion, the abortion rate? When are you going to deal with the low education rates? in in african-american communities when you're going to deal with the the gang violence when are you going to deal with the black on black crime and then we get shooed away Mm -hmm. as if somehow that's not important or that's not even the real issue when actually that is when when all these 
these people who they say that are oppressing them, all they have to do is really just sit back and watch the, the African-American community self-destruct because that's what it's doing. Sure. And the media is very, the media is very selective on mm-hmm. what they're presenting as well. Yeah, absolutely. And so their, their claim that, you know, the, the, our capitalistic, capitalistic society at its core is racist and, and they're to control the black man. Well, the, well, the media is doing that. Uh, and the, the, the media is, con- is controlling and, and, um, and, and keeping them back. So, yeah. And, and black people have been recipients of the benefits of capitalism. So I'm <laughs> again, like, like, like James Cohen, which I'm going to bring up in a, in a little bit here. Oh, I gotta, I, I gotta get, uh, so this is, so this is a biblical critique of James Cohn's black liberation theology. A lot of that, I just wanted to, lay out um yeah sure no on problem. the table because this, this is just to show why this is important this is um you know, talking about racism as such is this is a biblical anthropology discussion and um you know we talk about ethnicity this is biblical anthropology this is under systematic theology anthropology so this is a biblical critique of james cone's black liberation theology and i think the major issue with all of this is what james cone had to say about the terms of reconciliation, how man is reconciled to God or how God reconciles men to himself and how then in turn men are reconciled to men because we'd all uh, recognize that there's men have animosity towards one another. There's violence, there's anger. And like, like you brought up in James Cone's bio, he saw some stuff. He grew up in the South. And so, um, it is uh it was real segregation was real and he saw things and he was treated a certain way which i take exception to the way he was treated because it wasn't right of course you know um and so there's a context behind that and uh we do need to bring up and we we need to teach people not to act that way and so but his uh, this is this has more to do with sound doctrine versus false teaching when you're, when you're defining terms of reconciliation. So just because he went through those things doesn't give him the right to change the author's intended meaning of the text. We talk about right. um, reconciliation. So what does the, what's the biblical claim concerning the terms of reconciliation? I want to start first with what the Bible teaches, and I want to go into talk about what James Cone had to say about it. Uh, what, what is the biblical claim concerning the terms of reconciliation? How God reconciles men to himself? And as a result, men can be reconciled to one another, those who have been reconciled to God. And is black liberation theology therefore consistent with what the Bible teaches concerning reconciliation and the doctrine of the atonement? So I think the first place I want to read is the, is the ministry of reconciliation in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 21, concerning Jesus's, the active obedience of his life being charged to the account of the believing sinner. You know, that perfect record that he lived under the law that is charged to our, our account when we believe. The great exchange of the cross. And so that's, let me, let me turn here, Second Corinthians. And then I want to talk about the nature of the atonement from um, Ephesians chapter 11. Um, chapter 11, uh, chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. So here... here Second Corinthians, you can edit that one out there. Second Corinthians, um, chapter five, verse eleven. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. 
but we are made manifest to God. And I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. We are not again, commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And here it is. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteous of God in him. It's a great exchange of the cross. So, 2,000 years ago, God the Father took my sin and charged it to Jesus' account. And he treated Jesus on the cross as if he lived my sinful life, although he was innocent. And in turn, I repented unto salvation and believed the gospel and placed my faith and trust in the person and finished work of Christ. God the Father took his perfect righteousness and charged it to my account. And now he treats me as only as if I live the perfect life of the Lord Jesus Christ. His righteousness has been imputed or charged to my account. And so God the Father sees me as if I live Jesus' perfect life. That's, that's, that's referring to the active obedience of his life and how that it, you know, has to do with this, that soteriological feature of being reconciled to God. And now the nature of the atonement, you go to, you go to um, uh, Ephesians. Ephesians, uh, you guys have anything to add on that point? No, no, I'm, I'm good. Okay, Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verse 11 through 22. Listen to this. And so this, you know, talking about um, Jesus' atonement, you know, his cross work and his resurrection from the dead. And the book of Romans is very clear on these terms, identifying these terms. And so I just want to read these two passages and make some comments, but we're really talking about the theology in the New Testament, really the theology in the Old Testament and New Testament together, concerning the red thread that extends throughout the Bible about how man can be reconciled to God is through the person and cross work and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and placing faith in him. Verse 11 of chapter 2 of the book of Ephesians. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ 
excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And so there, there was the, uh, a, a, sort, a sort of, and you know, is the, we're talking about the law too and works. There's also this, this um, alienation between Gentiles and, and Jews based on ethnic distinctions that the Jews took ex- exception to the Gentiles and the Gentiles took exception to the Jews. And, uh, and so Paul is, is explaining, and he's using the doctrine of the atonement to explain how, you know, there's, there's no room for that anymore for Christians. We don't take exception to one another. And so that is, I, I, that is in the text. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. So it really has to do with the law, but by extension and implication, they certainly took exception to uh, Gentiles based on their ethnicity. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one man, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it, having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together in a dwelling place of God in the spirit. So I wanted to bring those two up because you have reconciliation to God and then reconciliation to fellow man based on the atonement. So when we talk about the, the nature of the atonement, you know, the extent of the atonement, we understand it as limited particular redemption. The nature of the atonement is vicarious, propitiatory, penal, substitutionary. So vicarious referring to an act of obedience of his life that's charged to the account of the bleeding sinner when they believe, the perfect righteousness of Christ that's charged in my account. And then you have the propitiatory because on the cross, he satisfied the, the, the Father's wrath on our behalf. Penal because of the penalty that he, he took, my, he took the penalty that I deserve when he died on the cross. Substitution in my place the nature of the atonement. And, and, and if you, uh, it's undeniable, you read the, the Old Testament, New Testament, you know, that is the nature of the atonement. And so that is the biblical definition of these terms and the terms by which reconciliation is only, only possible through the person and cross work and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the biblical definition of the nature of the atonement. Vicarious, propitiatory, penal, substitutionary atonement. Black liberation theology, on the other hand, denies that these are the terms of reconciliation mm-hmm. to God and to one another. Black liberation theology has a different definition for the atonement. And as such, has a different definition and terms on how reconciliation is possible between God and men, and men and men. So... Um, you brought up in the biography, James Halcone, 
um, he, he's the man, the self-proclaimed architect for black liberation theology, what's, what's known as black liberation theology. Like you said, he was born in 1930s in Arkansas. So he experienced uh, people taking exception to him based on his ethnicity for sure. Mm-hmm. And that's not right. And so I understand that. Um, he grew up in real segregation in the South, right. you know, with Jim Crow laws and all the rest. And so I'm sure he saw suffering and, and he had, and it was hard for him. And then he died, like you said, not too long ago, it was 2018 when he died. And, uh, um, very recently you can say that, you know, at the end of his lifetime, he saw the inception of black lives matter. So he would have saw the beginning of that. When did that really uh, you brothers know when, when did that really uh, start as a movement? Was it 2015? I think it was around 2014 or 15, if I'm not mistaken. Fred, Freddie Gr- Freddie Gray incident. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. that that would have been that would have been af- uh, the the architect of um, Derek Bell is architect. He's a lawyer of um, critical race theory. He died in 2011, I believe, and so he wouldn't have seen that, but. Um, James Cone definitely would have saw the inception of that. And, and uh, he, you know, like you said, he died not till it was two, it was 2018 when he died. Uh, so he, 2013. 2013 is when it started. Gotcha. Tra- Trayvon Martin is when it started. Ah, that makes sense. And so Cone, as you said, was, he was, uh, he was Methodist. So he's AME though, African Methodist Episcopal church. And uh, you brought up the institutions that he studied at Philander Smith College, Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary, and Northwestern University. And this is very important, though, when, when you want to understand James Cone and his thought process, because he was an anthropologist, for sure. He was an anthropologist. Because the title of his academic thesis is The Doctrine of Man. Okay, so he's the anthropologist. The Doctrine of Man in the theology of Karl Barth. The Doctrine of Man in the Theology of Karl Barth. So if you go to the, the Biblical Christ Research Institute, there's excellent articles written by Brother Duran here. Karl Barth and the Authority of Scripture. It's probably one of our more popular articles. Um, Duran also wrote an article on Black Liberation Theology, a critique. Uh, one of the articles on here, A Call to True Liberation. He has one critiquing... Uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s theology in uh, the dream and introduction. Um, and so please go for the people listening, please go and, and read about Carl Barth, you know, read what Duran has written because he did an excellent job and then go uh, study, study these features beyond that as well. But I want to point out that the reason why I want to start with anthropology, biblical anthropology is because um James Cone was an anthropologist. He wrote his doc, his thesis, The Doctrine of Man in the Theology of Karl Barth. And that's extremely important when you want to understand where James Cone was coming from. Uh, he, he, was, he was interested, James Cone was interested in systematic theology, specifically the category of anthropology. And as I, as I mentioned, uh, Cone's major influences were Karl Barth, a white theologian, uh, Paul Tillich, a white theologian um, and Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X. Those were his four major influences. And he kind of fused these, these, what these men taught uh, together, but also you have features um, as kind of the red thread extending through this. And later you'll find in 
critical race theory and Black Lives Matter, you know, Marxism, Karl Marx, another white guy. So you mix all these, all these people together, um, what, you know, Cohn's major influence is you get black liberation theology. And that's the truth. That's, uh, you, you can see that. But listen, uh, Cohn really became famous, as you point out, Chris, uh, with his first book, Black Theology and Black pa- Power, that was published in 1969. But his, ma- his major work, and, and the reason why I want to bring this up, because where he, he defines reconciliation, he defines the atonement, his major work is God of the Oppressed. That was first published in 1975. And I want to bring that to our attention in this podcast and this listening, because I believe this book, God of the Oppressed, really shows how Cohn should and must be considered a false teacher when you're talking about theology, because he, he, he professed to be a Christian. But this book shows how he's, he really should be considered a false teacher because of his definition of reconciliation and the doctrine of the atonement. And... Um, just to, before we get into his book, God of the Oppressed, notice the title is God of the Oppressed. Before we get into that, um, I want to note that, that Cone wrote many books in his lifetime, and he was extremely successful as a writer, very prolific writer. And Duran, you said something very profound. I, I believe it was episode six of this series. Uh, this, this is what you said. You said, there, there is always someone wanting to get rich off of identifying you as being oppressed. They become rich when you start believing it's true. And so when you said that in episode six, I immediately thought of, of, of Mr. Cone here. Absolutely. Not Brother Cone. He's not, not no. a brother. Um, no, not at all. But uh, l- listen to this. Um, I believe when Cone died, his network reached into the millions. Wow. I did a, I did a Google search and uh, like net worth investing, you know, a lot of them are, I don't know if it's 100% accurate, but the search that I did estimated that uh, he earned an estimated of $24 million. So I don't know how, how accurate that the one I looked up did the Google search was interesting. So the author of the book, God of the Oppressed, richly provided for himself during his lifetime as an offer and self-proclaimed founder of black liberation theology. Well, if you think about the bibliography, the bibliography of works that he has written, it wasn't just those, the books that you mentioned. He also wrote the crossing and lynching tree. Yes. He wrote, that, was, um, that was a later um, book, right? Yeah, that was later. He wrote uh-huh. um, my soul looks back. He wrote, he wrote a bunch of books. So you think about, the profits from all the books that he wrote. But then on top of that, you know, he's being paid uh, at Union Theological Seminary, and I'm sure that increased over time. He's so, probably ten, tenured, so. Yeah. And, so he's, he's, he's doing well as a professor. Yeah. So he might be up there with uh, his net, work, net worth, might be up there with oh, mo- oh, a little more, little more than John MacArthur. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and then you, you add all of the, 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 the conferences he probably spoke at. Oh yeah. All of I his mean, speaking engagements, he probably got paid for those too. So I mean he wasn't hurting for money. You know? Yeah, exactly. He, he so, definitely wasn't oppressed. <laughs> um so uh, yeah, exactly. So when <laughs> when Duran said that, I'm just man, man, you you hit the nail on the head with a hammer, man. Um and I thought Cone and 
Uh, but here, let, let me get into some of these, uh, some quotes from this book. And I, I have some clips, uh, some clips to audio clips. Uh, sure. So you can hear Cohn's voice and, and what he had to say. And so, again, I, I'm, I'm approaching this. Uh, I'm saying this is, not, this is not a race thing. You know, uh, this is a soteriological issue. And so I'm, I'm a, I, as elder of the Lord's church, local church here, I, um, I need to protect sound doctrine, you know, keep a close watch on yourself and the teaching. And so in doing, in doing so you, um, you protect yourself, I'm paraphrasing, but also those listening to you. This is extremely important. So we need to approach this from that perspective. What did he have to, how did he define reconciliation? Was he faithful to what the Bible teaches concerning reconciliation? And what was his definition of the atonement? So this is from God of the oppressed. This is page 210. I'm going to read some quotes here from his book, uh, chapter 10 on liberation and reconciliation. Page 210 here. This is... uh, This is James, James Cohn wrote, if we take seriously the objective reality of divine liberation as a precondition for reconciliation, then it becomes clear that God's salvation is intended for the poor and the helpless, and it is identical with their liberation from oppression. So you, you hear features of Marxism. And then he goes on to write, right after the next sentence that is why salvation is defined in political terms in the old testament and why the prophets take their stand on the side of the poor within the community of israel this is from the same chapter he 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 wrote how can we black people take seriously the unity in christ jesus when there is no unity in politics or religion God's act of of reconciliation is not mystical communion with the divine, nor is it a pietistic state of inwardness bestowed upon the believer. God's reconciliation is a new relationship with people created by God's concrete involvement in the political affairs of the world, taking sides with the weak and the helpless. And so it, it gets better. Wait a minute. Sounds just like the the key themes of liberation theology. One of some of the points that were made by the Boff brothers. Yeah, sounds, sounds exactly like the same thing. All right, now he's going to define reconciliation. Reconciliation means that God enters into Black history and breaks down the hostility and racism of white people. He says reconciliation is. Reconciliation means that God enters into black history and breaks down the hostility and racism of white people. God's reconciliation means destroying all forms of slavery and oppression in white America so that the people of color can affirm their authenticity of their political freedom. While divine reconciliation for oppressed blacks is connected with the joy of liberation from the controlling power of white people, for whites, Divine reconciliation is connected with God's wrathful destruction of white values. Everything that white oppressors hold dear is now placed under the judgment of Jesus' cross. 
this is a difficult pill for the white theologians and church people to swallow because they have so much invested in the status quo. And it is likely that they will continue to rationalize the meaning of divine reconciliation in spiritual but non-political terms. Now, listen to this. He goes on to write, we must refuse to let white, we must refuse to let whites define the terms of reconciliation. To be reconciled with white people means fighting against their power to enslave, reducing masters to the human level, thereby making them accountable to black liberation. White people must be made to realize that reconciliation is a costly experience. It is not holding hands and singing black and whites together, and we shall overcome. Reconciliation means death, and only those prepared to die in the struggle for freedom will experience new life with God. When I hear that from Cohn, all I hear is he wants revenge. Mm-hmm. He wants to see whites lynched. What he saw, you know, on the opposite of that in um, in the South during real segregation. But listen, I, I agree with Cohn. I don't think white people get to define the terms of reconciliation, but I don't think black people do either. Right. I think I think God is the only one that determines the terms on, on which reconciliation is possible. That's right. So we went, so we went over that. So um, I agree white, whites don't, but I, I disagree. You know, it, it's not, you know, um, as James Cone is, is arguing when he's talking about reconciliation. But you, and you see that today, you see that today. There's now blacks are defining the terms. Well, yeah, exactly. By then, which white people can somehow make black people equal with them. That's why they're yeah. hollering for reparations. And you see the, I'm sure you've seen the videos and the pictures of the the white people bowing down and bowing down. Exactly. Taking knees and washing feet and all kind of stuff. Yeah. But it's, guilt, guilt's um, not a feeling. There's a lot of subjective existentialism. Guilt is not a feeling. Guilt's a fact. You're either guilty or you're not. Right. You're either, you know, uh, racist or taking exception to someone by their ethnicity. If you are, then, you know, we understand that as sin, and so you need to repent. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, if I'm guilty of that, then I need to repent before God. I bow down to the Lord Jesus Christ. I will not bow down to another man. Not ever. Based on um, a subjective feeling that someone's... So w- w- what they're saying that, that whites are doing... Um, I'm, I'm, when I say they, I say black um, liberation theology and Black Lives Matter... Um, they're actually projecting what they're trying to do. Mm-hmm. And so, and so listen, this is, this is what James Cone in the same chapter, this is what he wrote. I contend only black people can define the terms on which our reconciliation with white people will become real. There it is. So there it is. Uh, I, want, I want to do some clips now. Uh, did, did you guys want to add anything or any, um, I just, I just, I just comments on that. I just add when, as you go along, if something comes to my mind, I just add as you go along, man. You, you, you got the show, man. We, we just, we're along for the ride. <laughs> All right, let me let me play some clips here from uh, sure, uh, Cone. 
so you can so you can hear him and, and, and what he has. Mr. James Cohen, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with me. Thank you. What did you draw on to do your, your theology as a professor, as an author? It was trying to bring together Martin Luther King Jr. and the Civil Rights Movement together with the Black Power Movement, this symbol of being Black in a white racist society. King interpreted the gospel in such a way in which the blackness of his identity was not at the center. Malcolm, a Muslim, rejected Christianity because it did not address his blackness. So I wanted to address my blackness, but yet at the same time, I was a Christian. I was born a Christian. I couldn't leave that. That faith was the center of my life. But the notice he said I was born a Christian. So he thinks his Christianity happened. <laughs> he's not referring to the new birth. He's referring to the fact that he grew up in a in a Christian consensus culture. Right, right. And and so he's got false views on conversion. But I'm just gonna pause and I, I got a lot to say with some of these clips. And and please feel free to to jump in if you if you have anything to add to it. Mm -hmm. way in which that faith had been interpreted in the seminary and also generally in the dominant interpretation of it in America, which King largely adopted, also had a white Jesus. Now, how are you going to get a European white Jesus in Palestine? You can't get that. But with white theologians... It's funny, just a little bit of my background. I grew up in very culturally diverse area um and ethnically diverse and uh one one of the one of my neighbors who would actually um babysit me uh she's african-american woman she was she's a wonderful woman and as i would go over there and she'd watch me she had a portrait of um what what, what he's saying you know would they refer to as a black a black jesus mm -hmm. so you, you know a picture of what she would identify as um as jesus a portrait of him and he looked african-american at my house, growing up in a, in a Lutheran context, um, there, it was a white Ashkenazi Jesus that my that my parents hung on the wall, and so I was confused. You know, is he is he white or is he black? He's neither. He's he's uh, he's of the tribe of Judah, and so this this existentialism, you know, that you get from neo orthodoxy and 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 later, you know, Lutheran. Uh, thought and stuff because we got the you know we were I grew up uh, Lutheran yeah I did and then, too and then the existentialism on the other side um, you know the both wrong <laughs> you know he's from and so uh, Cone brings that up here but well, let's listen some more you can get almost anything out of Jesus so they had reinterpreted Jesus so he looked like them so I wanted to bring the blackness of my identity together with the faith that I had learned in the church. And it was that that brought me to want to interpret the Christian gospel. So in black theology, which I developed, the blackness 
in that phrase comes from Malcolm X. The theology in it comes from Martin King. So I bring Martin and Malcolm together, the civil rights movement and the black power movement together in order to develop a black theology of liberation. So there, right there, he, he identifies himself as being the architect of right. this, of this, uh, this position. Go ahead. Sorry. You were going to say something. Yeah. You just, I don't, I know you guys caught it. I hope our listeners caught it. He said that he got his the blackness from Malcolm X. He got his theology from MLK. He did not say he got his theology from scripture. He, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, he that's, said, that's exactly he said, right. Because I was waiting. I was like, I, I yeah, got no, my theology from the Bible. No, he said, I got my theology from MLK. And his and if theology you, was just yeah. as off. No, that's, that's very discerning, brother. Um, and if you read, if you read, uh, read um, Duran's article article on you know Martin Luther King, and mm-hmm. and you study his theology, and uh, he's probably the last one you want to develop, uh, the you know get your theology from. This is true. Um, so hold on a second, I got another clip here, and and so so that first clip ha- is I just want to show you that James Cone is the architect of Black Liberation theology. Mm-hmm. The second the second quote is um the terms in which James Cone uh, defines the doctrine of the atonement. So listen to this. This is him defining the doctrine of the atonement. A major focus of your work today is the cross and the lynching tree. You're working on a book on that. Right. What does the cross tell us about religion and violence in our culture? Well, I think the cross the crucifixion of Jesus was a first century lynching. And it was very violent. In which Jesus was lynched. Well, America has a tradition of lynching in which America lynched more than 5,000 black people in this land. The Christian church said very little about it. It was very violent lynching. So if we understand the cross correctly, we will see it as Jesus being a victim of lynching, a victim of violence. So at the heart of the Christian faith is God taking upon God's self the suffering of the victim. So if Christians in this society want to understand what the crucifixion, what the cross was all about, they have to see it, particularly in America, in the United States, they have to see it through the lynching experience. That's the only way they'll understand what was happening at that cross. When you see a lynched black body, that's who God is. So his definition of... Um, the atonement is the core of what he's suggesting. Uh, well, hold on one second. Um, so there's more. God is present in that body, just like God was present in Jesus's cross. So the cross is very violent, in which God has taken the violence of sin in the world up on God's self. And if 
Christians today won't understand what that means and what it caused them to do. They have to see it through the experience of lynching within this country. So what does that mean? Um, let, uh, let me just continue one more minute of that. Tell us about the violence in our own lives and our identity as Christians. Well, I, I think it means as our identity of Christian, we have to become identified with lynched black victims. If we can't do that, we can't identify with the crucifixion of Jesus. And we just playing around. It's not real. And most of, for most of the people, the crucifixion is not real. It's just some little symbol, some little holy symbol. But the cross was violent. Crucifixion during Romans time was analogous to lynching during this time. You've addressed this in a way, and I'd like to read some. Okay, um, so that's his definition of the nature of the atonement. And you can't be a Christian unless you, you experience that, um, you know, subject, subjectively or ex, uh, existentially through the black experience. And then uh, this is, uh, is, is how one becomes a Christian according to Cone. So this is how one becomes a Christian. To Lincoln during this time. You've addressed this in a way, and I'd like to read something that, that you published recently. Most whites want mercy and forgiveness, but not justice and reparations. How does the cross inform the issue of, of justice and reparation? Well, the cross, as I said, is God taking the side of the victim. It's a symbol of that. God making ultimate identification with the powerless. Now, if the powerful in our society, the white people, if they want to become Christians, they have to give up that power and become identified with the powerless if you're going to be. So that's, that's how you become a Christian. <laughs> give up that wow. power, you know, white privilege. And when they call it white privilege today, <sighs> This is Christian. This is bad. You can't be identified with the powerful and also Christian at the same time. That's a contradiction of terms. Now, how do I how do I know that you really are identifying with the victim? Well, if you're identifying with the victim, you not only want to feel good about that, you also have to pay back that which you took. You just don't say, please forgive me now. The only way in which your repentance, your forgiveness can be, can be authentic, your reception of it can be authentic, your repentance can be authentic, is that you give back what you took. And white people took a lot from black people. And now, I really, you brought this up when you, when the, during the first clip, but this is this is very important discussion because this is the next the next clip is uh, James Cone's definition of interpretation, but specifically the doctrine of scripture. He's going to bring up terms inerrant and infallible, and, and what he thinks concerning inerrancy and infallibility of the scriptures. And so this this is probably the most important clip that I wanted to that I wanted to play. Um, listen to this. You know what? I'm going to skip. I'm going to go. Hold on one second. Proclamation for the kingdom that doesn't point to me, but points to the one who was on the cross. 
how do you account for the violence that's in the scriptures, not only of our tradition, of, of all the traditions? I think you account for that violence because as human beings wrote that scriptures. Human beings wrote those scriptures. Now, God may have been present, you know, inspiring them and moving in and between them, but human beings wrote those scriptures, and that violence is reflective of the human voice in those scriptures and the human beings in that scripture. Wow. That's why you just can't use the Bible and say the Bible says, which, what part? Where? You just can't take a verse here or there, and that's true in all scripture. Even those who think the scripture is infallible, is inerrant, is God's literal word. That may be. I'm not saying it's not. I don't think so. But I won't. I don't think so, is what he said. So he denies the doctrine of inerrancy, um, doctrine of infallibility. You know, his, yeah. I'm sorry, brother. No, his, okay. you know, his whole, the whole victimhood of Jesus is cast down by Jesus himself when he talks about his own view of his impending atonement on behalf of sinners. In John chapter 10, verse, I would say 16, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they hear my voice. They will hear my voice. And they will become one flock with one shepherd. Listen to this. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it up, so that I may take it again. Listen to this 18. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I receive from my Father. Jesus was not a victim. Yeah, he was amen. not a victim of either circumstances or a first century lynching. He laid down his life. Nobody took his life from him. It wasn't situations were going awry. It wasn't that he was, you know, a, a product of cultural and social upheaval. It was that Jesus laid down his life on his own accord, and he did so by his own authority. Amen. And he did so for a very specific purpose of gathering the elect uh, to himself unto salvation. Amen. And so... You know, what, what Brother Eric is playing, for those of you listening, is someone who is given over to uh, what we've been saying is existentialism. And, uh -huh. you know, one of the big issues and features with existentialism, and you see it today, is that the collective begin to identify themselves with the individual in such a way so as to misinterpret experience or reinterpret experience. Um, you'll see it when... A police officer, if he puts, an, an, he puts his knee on an individual, you'll see people say he's putting his knee on our neck as if they themselves are under arrest at that moment and as, as, or they themselves are vicariously living through the individuals who they deem the oppressed. And so it's a never-ending cycle of identifying uh, existentially uh, with events and reinterpreting them so that they provide meaning for yourself. And so that's what you see in Cone's uh, language regarding Jesus Christ. Go exactly. on, brother. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. You're 100% you're correct. It's existentialism. It's how he reads the scriptures, how he interprets the world around him. And again, that, you get that from, I mean, it's beyond just Karl Barth and uh, Paul Tillich, but there's a long line of existential philosophers and theologians uh, throughout the um, Enlightenment period, etc. I mean, you can do your research and look at all the the 
the historically famous people that, that held to those things. And so um, it's bad publicity, you know, if he, if he mentions Malcolm X, Martin Luther King Jr. And then, oh yeah, by the way, um, one of my favorite, one of my favorite theologians, Karl Barth, it's not going to go very well. <laughs> right. Exactly. With, 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 fit with his argument. So. Exactly. Um, yeah. And you said something really, uh, really profound too. It's, um, you know, it's what the Bible teaches on, I, I think it was on episode six too. Duran, you said the goal of the truth does not gather in one particular ethnicity above, above all others, because then God would be a God of partiality. What it does, the truth that is, brings in a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, and people. And we get that, you know, what you're saying here is you're reading the book of Revelation, and you're drawing that from the book of Revelation, chapter 5, verse 9. Listen to this. Concerning, you know, the, the success of the Lord Jesus' atonement. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And so like book ends. Book ends, starting with that, you know, Acts chapter 17, verse 26. I believe it's verse 26. And then, you know, Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. It, uh, it's not what James Cone is saying in existentialism. I mean, this is the, this is the reality of the fact that, you know, diversity is, is a good thing amongst ethnicities, but we comprise one, one race and there's no, there's no room for ethnocentricity thinking that your ethnicity is better than someone else's. And, and we see that in, in those that are redeemed, they, they don't think that way. And they don't behave that way. So I take exception to, you know, some of the reform guys today that want to hold to Calvinism uh, from the African-American community that, that say they're woke and saying, start, starting to make claims that uh, things like vicarious penal substitutionary atonement is white theology. Uh, you've lost your mind. You need to repent and return back to those tenets of the faith and don't go the way of James Cone, black liberation theology, critical race theory. And there's, there's no, there's no room for Marxism, the Lord's church or critical race theory, black liberation, the, uh, black liberation theology. I've, sh I've shown this is, you know, this is how he's defined in terms of reconciliation, but what does the Bible teach concerning the terms of reconciliation? And brother, if I can, Hit them from the other side of the coin, the so-called white theologians, so-called reformed white theologians, so-called conservative evangelical, modern evangelical scholars who are pandering to this in the name of trying to enlarge your ministries and increase your influence because you see the writing on the wall, so to speak. You see that you have played to the spirit of the age and now you have to continue that and where the spirit of the age is going is this ethnocentricity. Uh, you who are pandering to it and you who are trying to create a niche for yourselves need to repent and return to the tenets of the faith and rebuke Amen. This. Amen. And if, if you don't do that, then you're, uh, you're just as guilty as those on the other side of it who are trying to identify with it 
uh, from their ethnicity. 100%. Amen. I mean, well, we're, we're, we're speechless. And the reason is, well, I mean, this, this is, is, this <laughs> is, this is, this is, this is serious. I mean, just even hearing our brother expound on this, I, I really do pray that people will listen to what has been presented. You know, this, this has been a strong argument in favor of the biblical atonement, in favor of the substitutionary atonement, in favor of biblical anthropology so that people will come to right thinking and right convictions concerning what God has accomplished through his son, Jesus Christ. Um, that's, that's, you want something common to every man, every man has to face that reality. Yeah, Whether you yeah. face it unto you know, unbelief and judgment or belief and salvation in Christ. And so you know, he's, you know, he said in the clip that people who are interpreting the crucifixion in terms of uh, what the Bible would interpret it as, are playing. I would say it the other way. I would say those who are, you know, whether you're posting stuff on your social media platforms, whether you're in your pulpits, pandering to this ethnocentric spirit of the age out of fear or cowardice or both or whatever it may be, um, or some kind of misplaced boldness, I would say in both cases, you're playing. You're playing around. You're playing with God's word. You're playing with the atonement. You're playing with what his son has accomplished. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and there, you, it's not like we get to do over. It's not like you get to pick a side and then you can abandon that side. Um, you know, I would say, look at the contradictions in Cone's own life. Uh, look at how wealthy he made himself because there's always, he, what he understood about, and we'll get into this probably in the next episode, what he understood about the plight of the so-called African-American is emotion. He understood that. He understood that the emotions can be invoked that the emotions can be used for gain. And he also understood that the more you appeal to those emotions, the richer you'll probably become. And so uh, that is the product and legacy, I believe, quote unquote, legacy of his life. And I think Brother Eric has been fair. Uh, I think he has addressed this from a standpoint of the new birth, him being a born again Christian. And I believe that he's tried to identify with people who would claim that they're suffering and oppressed from the standpoint of what the word of God actually teaches and tells you and and tells you straight away that it's not a sense of critical race theory for which you believe you're oppressed. Uh, It's that if you feel any sense of oppression, you have to look to God and see if indeed you are on his side, if you're reconciled to him. Yeah. Uh, Because it is, it is the right emotion in the sense to feel like you're oppressed when you're against God. You are oppressed. You're mm-hmm. under certain calamity and judgment. Well, what we try to do, though, you know, in um, coming into this world from the beginning, you know, and I say a total proud of the original sin is trying to oppress God. Absolutely. And, and so he's the one who's offended by Absolutely. our sin. And so our only hope is to repent unto salvation and trust in Christ alone to be saved from the wrath of God. This is this is an issue of God's wrath and being reconciled to him. Amen. The one that, that we have we have the one that we've really offended. Amen. And so, yeah, if, if I, if I sin against you, you know, he, 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 God is the creator. So if I sin against you, I'm messing, I'm messing with his property. You're his mm-hmm. property. Mm-hmm. So what, no matter what happens, but, but they don't want to talk about how God is offended and what true repentance and true faith really looks like. Instead, this is an appeal for fleshly revenge 
and um, and not understanding, you know, eschatologically that, that God God is going to right every wrong, and every man's going to have to stand before Him and give an account for how they lived. Well, I think that's a fitting place to stop with the gospel being proclaimed right at the end. I think that's a very fitting place to stop. That's what our intent is anyway, to save souls. Um, yes, yes, we're here to uh, critique uh, false ideologies, false doctrines. We're here to um, talk about scriptures, talk about true biblical sound doctrine, but ultimately our goal is to see souls saved. So that is like a, a really good place for us to end. You know, Brother Eric, I thank you for doing all that research. I thank you for even finding clips. What what I really appreciate is that you're not, you have, what I appreciate the most is that you have firsthand convictions. You studied this stuff for yourself. You went to the scriptures to see what was so and what's not so. Um, you, you listened to Cone with a discerning ear. You, you found what the errors were, and then you went to the scriptures to, to write his errors. You know, that's what I appreciate is the firsthand convictions. You, you, you weren't, you weren't yeah. being a parrot and just like repeating. Uh, I, wanted to, I wanted to hear what, what, what he had to say and, and, right. and, and test it like a Berean. Right. You went, he, you, you went to the primary sources as, as, yeah, as, as you should, you know, yeah. we got, we got people on Facebook and they want to quote hyperlinks and quote their favorite Puritans or quote their favorite pastors or preachers or send you some clip. But I, I know that I can go to you or I can go to Deron or I can go to Mike or I can go to Matt and say, well, how did you come to that conclusion? And you'll sit back and tell me exactly how you came to that conclusion. And yes. it won't, it won't have anything to do with hyperlinks or anything else. And you, you actually go to the source at the primary source and you'll deal with the primary source and you'll deal with it through the scriptures. So, so I, I truly appreciate all the hard work that you've done uh, to critique James Cone. And of course you're welcome to come back anytime you want to. Well, yeah. Praise God. <laughs> Chris, thank you. You're doing a great job, man. Thank you so much for, for doing this and uh, for having me on. And Duran, thank you so much. Uh, this is really important. Uh, I've, you know, this is, a, um, I feel very, uh, uh, concerned about what's happening today. And, um, and so I'm going to address the, you know, these features that's happening today from, you know, the timeless word of God, you know, Amen. cause, uh, it touches on every subject of everything we're going through. And so I love systematic theology. I love the fact that I can pinpoint the exact category of where this discussion is coming from or where I can, I can systematically lay it under, you know, you're talking about this issue of ethnicity uh, it's this is, a, this is an anthropological issue, right. and Cone knew, Cone knew that too when he started on his road and his path to, uh, you know, and uh, and it. I, mean, I I don't believe that the man was regenerate. There's no way, or then or he would be saying, he would be accurately teaching concerning reconciliation and the nature mm -hmm. of the atonement. The last thing that I want to mention is with Brother Eric. He's written uh, an article a few years ago on biblical anthropology as well on the uh, bcri.wordpress.com. So please, please reader, read, read yes. that article. And so uh, next week we're, we're going to start our in-depth 
uh, series on the doctrines of African-American theology. Yeah, we, we, we thought we were going to go maybe like 10 episodes, but it looks like it's going to go a lot longer than that. So we pray that you will continue to listen, continue to pray for us, continue to support us. Uh, we'll start with uh, the doctrine of God in African-American theology. We'll go into Christology, uh, pneumatology, which is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. We'll touch on anthropology again. Um, we'll talk about uh, evil and sin. We'll talk about ecclesiology, the church. We'll talk about eschatology and the, the view of the end times and the heaven and hell. So we're going to cover all of it because we want to make sure that we cover all the bases so that <clears throat> you don't, you can't say, well, you left this out or you left that out. We're going to turn over, the, you know, we're going to do what I always talk about people posting police brutality and stuff is going to do. We're going to turn over the stones, but we're going to turn over the stones to glorify God and mm -hmm. to hold, hold the African-American theology up against the light of scripture. So uh, we thank you for listening. And we pray that you would continue to listen, continue to support us. Uh, if you have Apple Podcasts, please subscribe, leave a review. Um, and for those of you who have been blessed by the podcast, please share it with as many people as you can, because everybody needs to hear this. Um, so we thank you again. Thank you for listening. You guys have a great and a blessed week. This has been Train of Thought, a podcast of the Biblical Christ Research Institute. For our written articles, go to bcri.wordpress.com. And for sermons, go to SoundCloud and search Biblical Christ Church. For comments and questions, email us at bcritrainofthought at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.